So we're at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and um, parents, it's an interesting dynamic that happens between parents and kids that Paul is pointing us to here in this chapter as a way to get us started in looking at this uh, material this morning. Parents, you know that you get to watch your kids grow up, right? You get to observe their lives, their foibles, their strengths, their weaknesses, times they fall short. There's a, there's a, a secret on the flip side of that reality, which is that Kids, you get to watch your parents. <laughs> you get to grow up, and I assume, kids, that if you're here in this room still, you're, you're older than the kids who are going back to Redeemer Kids. So we're talking mostly to teenagers in here. Maybe you're still living at home. Maybe you have gotten old enough to think you know way better than your parents about most things. Maybe you've gotten a little, a little bit older than that, and you've realized maybe my parents do know a thing or two after all. But we get to, we get to observe each other. And sometimes we resort to, to blame, to self-justification. That's not where Paul is taking us. He's, he's recommending to us wisdom and righteousness in considering the lives of those who have gone before us. In the same way that that children get to observe the lives of their parents. How, how do my parents walk with the Lord? So Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 is pointing us to a history line, a history lesson. How did our forefathers in the faith walk with the Lord and what can we learn from that? Specifically in what, remember, you may remember what Eric preached about last week that we want to run the race in such a way as to win and not be disqualified. That's our goal here. And that's carrying on into this discussion in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So how did our parents run, or Paul will tell us, how did our forefathers in the faith run, and what can we learn from that? And specifically, another question that's carrying through, we're trying to connect these dots mentally as we walk through the scripture. The question of food sacrifice to idols that Eric spent several weeks uh, uh, answering and responding to leads to a second and related question for these Corinthians here in chapter 10. What about attending pagan temples? What about attending pagan festivals? Since we're free and we have freedom in Christ, can we do that? And so Paul wants to give them a history lesson as they consider participation in eating and drinking within the temples of the pagans in Corinth there. So let me read with that in mind. That's a lot, I know. But with all that in mind, let's read 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 22, and then let's look at what Paul has for us. 1 Corinthians 10 starting in verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers, here's the beginning of the history lesson, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. 
Now, these things took place as examples for us. This is what we're talking about. That we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. That's the exhortation that we're going to come back to later together. No temptation has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as the sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread... We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All right, Paul covered a lot of ground there. And we want to begin to unpack this and see what we can take with us. In this passage, Paul wants to put a magnifying glass on our heart realities. Okay, there's a lot there. But in this passage, he wants to put a magnifying glass on our heart realities by giving us this history lesson. Okay, we're going to take this history lesson and then think about three realities from that. In this history lesson, Paul shows us three things, if you're taking notes today. First, the reality of the tempted heart. Then, the reality of the divided heart. And finally, he wants to to bring us back to the heart of God. He wants to show us God's heart. For us. So we'll look at those three things the tempted heart, the divided heart, and the heart of God. So, first, that history lesson as Paul walked us through. And part of that history, the Israelites were very proud of, right? Paul emphasizes, you may have heard the word all repeated through that. They all followed Moses, they were all baptized into Moses, they all passed through the sea, they all ate the same spiritual food, they ate the manna. Remember, they ate the same spiritual drink when they had no water in the desert. The Lord provided water for them in the desert. The Lord flew in clouds of quail and had them land right at the feet of all the Israelites. So they had food. So they, they, re, they, they remember that part of their history. But if that's the only history they remember, it's what we would call a revisionist history. <laughs> because it doesn't tell the whole story of everything that went on there. Which, by the way, we can already begin to identify and learn from this history lesson because we do the same thing. We tend to minimize the reality of our own sinfulness as we look back at history. We tend to see the highlights. We tend to minimize the things that went wrong. Well, what were some of the things 
that went wrong. Paul tells us, nevertheless, in verse 5, even all these people that ate the manna, drank the water, passed through the Red Sea on dry ground, escaped from Pharaoh, right? Were delivered over and over again. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. We, we know this because of the history lessons he gives us. And in verses 7 through 10, these would have been like hyperlinks in the mind of people from Israel at that time. For those early believers who were familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, these would have exploded with reality as Paul makes four different quotes from the Old Testament, pointing them back to scenes from their history that they would have rather forgotten. But which Paul says were written for our benefit, that we can learn from them. So when he says, for instance, that the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. He's referring to that passage in Exodus chapter 32. If you're taking notes, just make a note of that. We don't have time to read through the whole chapter. But that was, that was the time, you'll remember, when uh, God had led the people and Moses to the mountain of the Lord. And then Moses had gone up on the mountain of the Lord to receive the Ten Commandments. Right? Anybody ever see the old movie, the Ten Commandments? Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days, so let's, it's a long time, it's over a month that Moses is up on the mountain, and the people come to Moses' brother Aaron, and they say, we're a little concerned. <laughs> this man Moses, he led us out of Egypt, but we don't know what's become of him. So then what do they suggest? We want you to make us a golden calf to be with us. Because this Moses, we don't even know if he's going to come down from the mountain. There's been a lot of lightning, a lot of stuff happening up there. Who knows if he's ever going to even come back. So make us a calf of gold. And it says, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And they celebrated around this golden calf and said, this is the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. Not something that they wanted to remember. The second one is in Numbers 25, when he refers to not indulging in sexual immorality. When you may remember that the daughters of Moab seemed very attractive to the people of Israel. And they began to sleep with daughters, from, with women from Moab. And then they were invited to family festivals to worship the gods of Moab. In verse 9, he says, we must not put Christ to the test. This refers to Numbers 21, when the people who were following the pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night became impatient, we read, became impatient with God's timeline. This trip is taking forever. And if you go back and look at the map of the route they followed through the desert, you can see that God did not lead them on a straight line. It was kind of... They wander over here and then come back and then they kind of circle and then around and then back through. And they must have wondered, where in the world are we going? They grew impatient with God's timeline and they spoke against God and they spoke against Moses. This is one of the first times where we read, why did you even bring us out here into the desert anyway? We would have been better off in Egypt. 
And then in verse 10, we read that they grumbled against Moses. They grumbled against the Lord. You remember when they were on the, the very edge of the promised land to which God was leading them. Remember how they sent spies into the promised land, Caleb and Joshua and 10 other spies. And they come back and Caleb and Joshua bring a good report and say, we can surely take this land. Look at the size of these grapes. This is going to be great. Let's go into the promised land. But the other 10 came back with a, with a downhearted report. There's giants. You should see the size of their armies. We can never overcome those obstacles. And the people wept and they begin to grumble and they say, wouldn't it have been better off for us just to die in Egypt than to die in the desert? They begin to, they begin to grumble. Nevertheless, Paul says, even though they had eaten the manna and drunk the water and followed God through the desert and been taken care of and provided for everything they needed, nevertheless, I almost, titling sermons is not my favorite part of putting these things together. Coming up with a good title. I almost called this title today, How to Desire Evil Like Israel Did. I decided against it. Because that's the, that's the thing Paul wants us to avoid here. To not desire evil as they did. Because these people, they followed Moses and... Before we skip too quickly to their sin, to the behaviors, what was their heart response? They became afraid, right? They followed Moses and they became afraid when he was up on the mountain for over a month. They passed through the Red Sea and they were found themselves attracted to the Moabite women. They drank the water and they were impatient with God's timeline. They ate the manna and... They became tired of eating manna every breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day. What's for breakfast tomorrow? Manna, right? They became tired of that. And we don't tend to think of these things as sins necessarily, and I think that's right. But it's in these places that we are often tempted. These are places of temptation when we're tired. These are places of temptation when we're attracted, right? These are places of temptation when we're afraid. And we start to see Paul helping to put a magnifying glass on our own hearts. The temptations that we face. The temptations for security. For presence. For companionship. For rest. To arrive already. I thought I would be through this season by now. Right? Which brings us to consider what really is idolatry anyway. That's what this passage is about. Flee idolatry, he told us. So then what is idolatry and how does it work? Because we don't, in our cultural setting, it's unlike Corinth, we don't have temples to Aphrodite necessarily, right? In the Old Testament that we read about there and in Corinth there were shrines to their favorite deities. And so, for instance, Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty, had three different sanctuaries in the city of Corinth. And each sanctuary had its own priests and rituals and rites of worship. And you could go there and you could get food to eat as part of that rite of worship and, and, and water or uh, wine to drink. 
and there were temple prostitutes. There were a whole array of tempting pleasures there at the sanctuaries of Aphrodite. And so we may think, well, we don't really have priests like that. We don't really have rituals like that. We don't really have temples like that. Well, maybe not in the same form, but we still tend to organize our lives and even our communities around things like beauty, around things like wealth, around things like political power, right? Around commerce. And so how does this work? Well, the the thing about idolatry is that there's, there's, there's two things. There's a desire in our heart, and there's an object that our heart desires. It, it wants to latch on to that object. We have these desires because our hearts are desire factories. And all the time, there, there's, there's cravings. Not, not necessarily for bad things, right? We read that about the people of Israel. Cravings for security. Cravings for companionship. Cravings to arrive, cravings for provision, right? But how will we answer those cravings? How, what, to what object will we attach those desires? That's part of the question that we're looking at here. And we tend to attach to some of these centers, these objects in our culture for security. We heard about one this last week, right? If I say uh, Credit Suisse Bank. Right? How is that center of security going in our culture right now? It's creating some big problems for people's sense of security and identity. And we don't know whether that's going to have a cascading effect in other banks, right? I got an email this week from one of my banks that I have an account at, and the president and CEO of that bank assures me that everything is fine. The problem is with other banks, but our bank is in really good shape. Huh? I hope that he's right, right? But we tend to build our lives, we tend to organize our lives, find our identity, find our security around these things, right? We might find a temptation to fear because of the news. And so then we might crave security in regard to our finances. And we might attach to some object which promises security to us, right? This is how our loyalty becomes divided through our temptations. Do these things push us back into the arms of our Father in heaven who has promised to give us everything we need to find our security? Or do we find, do we find more comfort in earthly security? And so our heart, attempted heart then becomes a divided heart as our heart loyalties are divided. For the Corinthians, this was a concrete question. Visiting one of these sanctuaries of Aphrodite, for instance, and taking part in the sacrifices, the meals, the celebration that went on there. Paul's answer to, are we free to visit these pagan temples and take part in these festivals, is no. No, how could you? No, how could this be compatible with the Christian life is what he is saying. It's a little bit nuanced from the question that we were asking in the previous chapter about food sacrificed to idols. When food is presented before you, 
Eric walked us through this the last couple of weeks. When food is set in front of you, you should have a free conscience to eat that food. There's freedom because it's food. Food is food. And remember, if somebody says, oh, by the way, this food was sacrificed to idols, if it's going to damage the conscience of that person who's providing that food for you, then it would be better for you to use your freedom to refrain. Or if you knew that 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 news was going to damage the conscience of your brother or sister in Christ who did not themselves feel the freedom to eat food sacrificed to idols, then it would be better for you to use your freedom to refrain to serve your brother or sister in Christ. But this is a, a little bit different question because Paul says it's, it's one thing to have freedom in that moment to follow the dictates of conscience. It's another thing to purposefully pursue fellowship with what he says, aren't just stone and gold and wood idols, but with demons. Because in every culture, there's a desire to make ultimate spirituality out of the things we crave. And though the gods are what we call false gods, they are the representatives of demonic powers and strongholds in culture for the Corinthians and for us. And so while it's one thing to have freedom of conscience, it's another thing to purposefully pursue, Paul would say, fellowship with demons in this way. Don't do that. Don't do that. How can you? And it's interesting in the light of in the light of these uh, meals that would have taken place in, in places like the the sanctuaries of Aphrodite, Paul brings us to his first mention of the communion table in Corinthians. He's going to talk more about that as we go into chapter eleven, the famous passage of "I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you." We're going to take a look at that at that in a few weeks. But here is for, uh, Paul's first mention of communion in First uh, Corinthians. What is it that happens? For us as Christians, when we come together in communion, what is it that we are celebrating? That as individuals, we once were lost, and now we're found. And we, we've been brought near to Christ. We, we once were distant from him. And he, like a good shepherd, has brought us to himself. And we have embraced him. We've responded to him. And we've come into fellowship with one another. Right? If we, if we belong to Jesus, we also belong to other people who belong to Jesus. Because Jesus' goal on this earth is not simply individual salvations, but he is forming a church. He's forming a body on planet earth, a new creation, a new people for himself, a new community who are gathered together in fellowship with him, who have an eternal life to celebrate, to worship before him, to fellowship together, to live out the purposes of God that he has for them for all eternity. And so that when we take the bread and the bread is broken, we find ourselves taking the inside pieces of the bread because we ourselves have been brought into the body of Christ. We are to use different language, incorporated into Christ himself. And he is our head and we are his body. And we belong to him in organic relationship, living and vital. And the head is in the body. We belong to him and he belongs to us, right? And there's functionality. 
as, as he directs and leads us and we function and maybe you're an elbow and I'm a finger and we're all on the same team together and Paul's going to go into some of that metaphor as well. But this is what happens in the meal in communion. We are celebrating that incorporation into the body of Christ. When we drink the cup of Christ, we're celebrating that we as individuals have come together and it's his Holy Spirit that dwells and gives life to our body. It's his blood that flows through our veins and is representative of this new covenant into which he has brought us. That we come and we sit at this table, which is, which is why in a little bit, Paul's going to get to, it's so important that there not be divisions among you when you come together in communion. It's, can you see it's a contradiction? Because communion is how Christ has brought us together in an organic spiritual union. Christ has brought us together and we belong to him. But here in this passage, in, in 1 Corinthians 10, you can see how Paul is saying how it's incompatible, that it's unthinkable then for him. That you have sat at the table of the Lord Jesus and you've been incorporated into his body and his blood flows in your veins, that you would go and look for a different table. That you would go to a different meal. Isn't the Lord giving you everything that you need in Jesus? The answer to that question is yes. <laughs> the Lord is giving you everything you need in Jesus through his body, by his spirit and his blood. And it's a useless gesture to go look for a different table to sit at. To go to a look to a different body to belong to. Right? It's a contradictory gesture. It's a demeaning gesture. It's a disintegrating gesture. Right? And so you can see that once again, the threat that we read about in the Old Testament is happening to the Corinthians. A body of believers is being formed. And through the, the temptation of idolatry, there's a danger of them being picked off. One at a time. Being picked off individual by individual. And the body of Christ is in danger of being torn down. That's the threat here. That's the threat of the divided heart and how idolatry begins to work on us here. It's incompatible for us to sit at a table with demons. And this was a very concrete reality for, for Paul's readers in Corinth. To go to that temple, to purposefully pursue that kind of fellowship, Paul said, no, we're not, we don't purpose, we have freedom. We have freedom, but we don't use that to purposefully pursue fellowship with demons. That there be divided loyalties among the corporate body. The call for us as Christians, the call for us as Christians is to be wholehearted members of Jesus' body. That's his call. When he calls us to follow him, when he calls us to trust him, we are called to wholehearted devotion, to wholehearted worship, that our hearts even though they tend to be fragmented and have lots of what you could call little kingdoms in our hearts, Jesus wants to conquer them all. And though we are individuals, we come together as a body and Jesus wants his whole body 
He died for his whole body. His Father has sent his Spirit to make good on his death so that he will gather his whole body together. He is, Paul uses the word at the end of this, uh, these verses that we read, jealous. With a godly and righteous jealousy that all those who are his would be his. That he would not lose one of those for whom Christ died. God loves those and is wholehearted himself toward his people. And so the call to the Christian is to be wholehearted in our trusting of Christ, to find all our identity, all our security, all our hope, all our purpose in Jesus, in our union with him, as we are made to be part of the body of Christ. To be an idolater is to be a divided person, is to have our heart in pieces, is to have a bunch of little different loyalties like, like grappling hooks, throwing out of our heart, one over there, one over there, one, one over here. And then we get drawn and quartered. They explode in different directions, right? Because our loyalties are pulling us in all these directions. Paul wants us to be wholehearted toward Jesus. In a different context, you remember the words of Jesus, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Interesting that he was talking about a demonic stronghold there. Yet the same statement holds true here. With the threat of this demonic presence through idols in the Corinthian culture, a house divided against itself cannot stand. We tend to think of sin in behavioral categories, right? The things that we do is, is how we think about sin. But here Paul is relocating the way we think about sin, um, more into what about our divided loyalties? What about the state of our heart loyalties in our desires and our cravings as we relate to the objects in our culture? We're tempted by our own desires and we're set on a path of division against God. Now for us, this may seem less concrete. We don't have a temple to Aphrodite in Chesapeake that I know of. Do we have a, I don't think so. I don't think we have a temple to Aphrodite. But you might ask yourself questions like this. What is it that I live for? Where do I find my hope and security? I gave you an example at the top of Credit Swiss Bank, right? That shakes us when something like that happens. But there's other examples of this. What do I live for? What do I find my identity in? If one of your friends looked at your TikTok or some other social media that you use, could they pick out from the top 10 videos or whatever, top 10 stories, what it is that you live for? Where you find your security and your hope and your purpose and your identity, right? So we don't have temples per se, but we still tend to organize our lives around these priorities. Right? These secondary priorities that are scrambling to become the top priority. What do I turn to when I think God's failing to deliver the things that I want? In the time frame that I want them. Can you start to, the, the history lesson we got a few minutes ago, see how helpful that is? 
You say, well, I never whored with the daughters of Moab. Well, me neither. But the realities of a divided heart are something that I have seen. Right? Have you seen that in your own heart? You never pass through the Red Sea as on dry, dry, dry ground. But have you ever grumbled against the Lord? Have you ever grown impatient with his time frame? See, we live in the same place. I mean, several thousand years later, but we live in the same place because of the heart realities that we're talking about. Paul is warning these Corinthians about a Corinthian buffet. When God fails to deliver, just spread out the buffet of all the other options, of all the different gods that exist, and, and just take your pick. Just take your pick. Can you see how this is just an exact picture of this heart that has all these different loyalties pulling you in different directions? You go to the Corinthian buffet, and if you need some fertility, you go visit the fertility goddess, right? If you need a boost to your business, you go visit the, the business god, right? We don't worship at the temple of Aphrodite, but it is possible, I suppose, to worship at the temple of Sephora, right? Is that un underhanded of me as a, as a guy to do that to the ladies, okay? And I can't tell you if that's you. That's, this is something only you can know about your heart. Whether you just make use of Sephora products or whether you actually worship at that temple and you find security and identity at that temple, right? That you access the priests on TikTok to help you know how to do that makeup and do that. I don't even want to go there because I can't even explain what that is. Right? And then, and then how do you, if, if that's true, one of the ways you can know if that's true is, is how do those gods treat you when you succeed? You get extra likes, right? Or what about when you fail? Those gods beat you up. You're really not that beautiful after all. And you never will be. Maybe you worship at a temple that looks more like the temple of, of Hermes, who was the god of wealth and commerce and fortune. Maybe you consult the priests of Morningstar. Fiscal reports on stocks and bonds and mutual funds to see which direction they're going and what the, the economic moat is around Apple these days and which stocks you should be investing in next and whether your portfolio is going up or down, right? Those things can be tools. And again, only you can know. This is something between you and the Lord that Paul is putting the magnifying glass on. If, if that's a tool for you, or if you're worshiping at that altar, the altar of Morningstar, the altar of Dow Jones, right? The altar of the markets. There's all kinds of opportunities, which is why there was, if you've ever looked into Greek mythology, there were all kinds of gods over everything because it was just this Corinthian buffet. You could just kind of pick and choose and take what you wanted. But every time you stick your hands in, every time you dip in, you're creating a heart loyalty. Your heart is attaching itself, grappling hook, onto that thing. And you've created a, a loyalty and you've become a person of a divided heart, which is the definition of an idolater. You say, well, I'm not an, I'm not an idolater. 
I just want to decide what I believe. I don't want somebody else to tell me what to believe. I just want to decide for myself. I want to consider the claims of Buddha and the claims of Christ, the claims of Muhammad. I want to consider the claims of Carl Jung and Wall Street, as well as political systems, and maybe Aphrodite too. Paul would say, who do you think that you are, that you can line up the gods, so to speak, and then choose, pick and choose among them? Do you have the wisdom, really, to know the beginning from the end, to know the presentation from the ongoing purpose, the alpha from the omega? Do you really know that? Do you know that all these other paths in the end, Paul would say, lead to death? There's only one path that leads to life. And that's when Jesus speaks to each of us. And he says something very simple. He says, follow me. Wait, but I want to choose what I believe. Jesus, what's your position on? And he cuts you off right there and he says, no, follow me. Well, yeah, but what about, you know, for a few years, I think that's good. But what about when we get to 2029, he cuts you off. Follow me. My path is the path of life, but it's not a buffet. It's not a pick and choose. And I'm demanding and calling for wholehearted loyalty, an undivided heart. God is concerned about our hearts, about the division that we find, which is why God puts his own concern, his own heart on display here in this passage. Paul exhorts us in verse 12, let any one of us who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And so we look back at this history lesson, we look at the Corinthians, we think, you know, I'm not an idolater, but Paul says, okay, you're not an idolater, take heed lest you who think you stand have the possibility of falling. He said, take heed lest you fall because, why? No, there's, no there's no temptation that's overtaken you that's not common. These things that we're talking about are not just ancient history. That's our present reality. This is where we live. These things are common to us all. All these temptations, these temptations that then lead to a divided heart. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common. And... God is faithful. God is faithful. He's not going to let you go. This is where we mean that God is jealous in the best sense. God sent his son to die for you. And he poured out his spirit to fill you and to lead you. And he's going to make good on the promises that he has made. He's taken hold of you, Corinthians. He's taken hold of you, Redeemer Church, right? He's taken hold of you. And he is not going to let you go. He's faithful. And he will not be, let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he's also going to provide for us. He's going to provide a way of escape so that we may be able to endure it. This is the God who can be trusted. All these other gods on this buffet that we've laid out, you can trust them about as far as you can throw them. That's it. This is the one God who can be trusted. This is the God who can be trusted, who's revealed himself in Jesus Christ. And so when our hearts are tempted, it helps us to remember 
that God's heart toward us is undivided. God is wholeheartedly in love with his church. God is wholeheartedly in love with you because of Jesus. God is not divided. We think that, right? We think, well, maybe you had good things for me a few years ago, God, but I'm not sure anymore. Or maybe you have good for some people in the church, but I'm not sure about me. Paul says, no, there is no shadow of turning with him. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is faithful, and he is wholehearted toward you, and he's demonstrated this in Christ, that we have a high priest who came what, and lived among us, took on our flesh, experienced every temptation as we did, and yet was without sin. Who suffered on our behalf, drinking the cup that God had for him, and has, in this, even as his body was broken, has welcomed us into fellowship with himself, a fellowship that we cannot lose. And so he says, eat. This is my body broken for you. Drink. This is my blood poured out for you. Can you see how God is wholehearted? He's not holding anything back from you. He's laid it all out for you. God is wholehearted for you. Let me invite the worship team as we wrap up, wrap up our time here in 1 Corinthians 10 this morning. I'm thinking of this reality, and I'm thinking of a prayer. The reality of God's wholeheartedness toward us is something that I, I read in Jeremiah 32 and 29. Let me read it. We have it on slide here. Let me read it for you. Paul says this about his people, his people who had turned to other gods and who had wandered away from them. He said, I will bring them back to this place. And I will make them dwell in safety and they shall be my people and I will be their God and I will give them one heart. Do you hear the promise of God there? I'll give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant. It's a covenant that will never break that I will not turn away from them from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they might turn away from me. And then I think of the prayer in Psalm 86. And let me read this for you as well. In verses 11 and 12, we pray with the psalmist, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Do you, do you hear that? Unite my heart. Lord, we, we confess we're often tempted. We're often on a path toward a, a divided heart. Right? We, we sang that this morning. Prone to wander, Lord. Can we be honest with him about that? Prone to wander, Lord. I feel it. And so we pray with the psalmist. Unite my heart. Take all the pieces that are prone to go after so many things and worship at those altars and find my identity and my security and my purpose and my hope and all those things. Unite my heart that I would be wholehearted toward you. And then I will give thanks to you O oh Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify 
your name forever. So what do we do when we discover ourselves on this path? When we find ourselves tempted? When we find ourselves with division in our heart? Paul tells us to flee from idolatry. How do we flee from idolatry? By, by running back to the Lord. By running back to Him and say, Lord, you see my heart. My heart is tempted. It's in pieces. But I see that what you have for me is better. I see that what you have for me is better. I see that you yourself are better. You are the God who gives life. Lord, lead me on that path. Give me a united heart. Build up your church because of Jesus. Isn't that our prayer? That's our prayer. Let's look to him together this morning. And let's worship together as we close our time.